Welcome to Boar Barigmi, Food for Thought. My name is Vamsi Reddy, and I'm here with my co-host, Akul Munjal. We're excited for you to join us as we take a deep dive into the contemporary topics of medicine, philosophy, psychology, ethics, and so much more. This is Akul Munjal. Before we get started, I just wanted to mention that we are medical students and none of the opinions expressed on this podcast reflect any organization or institution. Thanks for joining us. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Borborigmi. As some of you might know, Akul and I are approaching the end of our third year of medical school at the Medical College of Georgia. Akul decided to pursue orthopedic surgery, and I've chosen neurosurgery. During our second year, we were introduced to a new faculty member, Dr. Renee Hilton, and she lectured our class and is an incredible inspiration to both of us. We're extremely grateful to have you join us today, Dr. Hilton. Could you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Thank you both very much. It's uh, great to be a part of this. I'm so excited you both are doing this um, during the time away from from your clinical rotations from COVID-19. I'm happy to see you making good use of it. And um, it's always fun to interact with our students at MCG. So thank you for having me. Um, My name is Dr. Renee Hilton. Um, I'll just give you a little background of where I'm from. I'm actually uh, from Georgia originally. I grew up on a a peanut farm in South Georgia in a tiny town called Edison uh, outside of Albany. Um, I left there and went to the University of Georgia and then am an alumni of MCG as well. Um, From there, I did my general surgery residency um, at Jackson Memorial Hospital, which is the University of Miami. Um, And from there, I did a dual fellowship in minimally invasive and bariatric surgery at Yale University. Um, And about three years ago now, I got a call um, and Dean Hess and Dr. Charlie Howell were uh, trying to get someone to come back down here and um, take over the bariatric program. And um, I jumped on the opportunity to leave the snow uh, and get a little bit closer to my family. So um, I've been back in Georgia now, like I said, for about three years and very, very happy here. Um, We bought a farm a little bit outside of Augusta. So I'm I'm, I'm back to being a farm, farm life, I guess, again. This is kind of an obligatory question that we have to ask. So how has coronavirus impacted your current practice, both as a surgeon and as a program director? So, wow, um, in a big way. So this was kind of unprecedented. Um, I've I've never seen anything like this in in my lifetime, and I don't know that we ever will again. But I I think medicine will kind of be, you know, defined as pre-corona and post-corona after this. Um, it's, it's had a huge impact on me both personally as well as professionally. My entire family um, is still down in Albany, which in Georgia has been one of the hardest hit parts of the state. Um, both my mother as well as my aunt are nurses um, on the front line at, at Phoebe. Um, my aunt is actually positive with coronavirus. Fortunately, she's doing very well. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's also, we're on the front lines here. I continue to do emergent and urgent cases. So, I'm always worried that I'm going to bring it home. I have an infant daughter um, and my husband. Um, so it's, you know, it's definitely changed the way that you go to work each day. And I think you're very appreciative of the time with your family. Um, and we're trying to be safe while still providing world-class care for our patients. So um, I have a decontamination routine. When I get home each day, I leave everything in the washroom, go straight to the shower. I bathe in Lysol before I ever hold the baby. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's that, that part has been, like I said, that's the most stressful part is just trying to make sure that while I care for my patients, I'm not bringing anything home to my family. Um, but from a professional standpoint, as frustrating as it's been in one way, I also think it's allowed us to see growth. Um, we've really invested a lot in telemedicine. So I'm seeing all of my patients now via telemedicine. 
Um, and it hasn't actually slowed us down that much. We're still able to see all of our new consultations, our pre-ops. Um, we're doing that for clinic visits. And as far as the operating room, we did cancel, you know, right now we're kind of, you know, four or six weeks into this. So for the first month to month and a half, we were canceling all elective surgeries. We've actually opened back up to elective surgeries now, but every patient is screened for COVID prior to coming to the hospital. So if anyone's positive, we don't bring them into the hospital. We wait, defer their surgery. Um, but for patients that are asymptomatic and get a negative COVID test, they're coming in, they're getting their elective surgery done now. Um, so we're kind of starting to see a little bit of a return to normalcy um, here in late April. And I think May will be the month where we kind of start to ramp everything back up. And possibly by June and July, maybe we'll start to see some normalcy again in our clinics. Um, and also for education, I will say with education, again, it's kind of taught us that we're not as limited as we thought before with some things. We've been able to use Zoom and Microsoft Teams and all of the other fancy apps um, to do all of our, um, our conferences, essentially. We're still doing morbidity and mortality each week. We're doing educational conferences. Um, we have our robotic simulators and other educational tools that are available for our residents to use during the downtime. Uh, we've really kind of focused on research. There's lots of things that we can continue to do from our homes. Um, and while we're on these modified shifts to keep our residents safe, um, there's, there's still stuff we can do that doesn't just have to be clinical. Uh, we're also educators. So um, we've, we've tried to continue to work as educators as well as clinicians. We know that another role that you play is as a program director. Uh, so how do you feel like your role is going to change in the upcoming cycle, given all of the craziness? Yeah, so that's a really good question. So I've actually already been getting emails from some of the other program directors about how do we make sure that our students at MCG remain competitive um, without being able to do away rotations, without being able to do sub-eyes over the summer at different places. Um, and I, I think that it's going to be interesting to, to see and show that sometimes the sub-interns, while they're great because they give you exposure to another environment, they're not the end-all be-all for every student. I think that research is going to become incredibly important. Um, you guys have had several months at home where research is certainly an option to kind of pad your CV right now. I also think just picking up the phone um, and calling people around the country, calling our friends at other institutions is going to become invaluable in this, this next cycle. Um, so if I've worked with a student personally, like several of our, of your classmates who've done research with me and, and done rotations with me, um, I'll pick up the phone and call my friends at, you know, Penn State or Yale or Miami or other places around the country and say, hey, I know you didn't have the opportunity to meet this student, but as your friend and as your colleague and as some of someone who you've worked with in the past and you trust, I can tell you that this is a great student. They're going to be an awesome doctor and they're going to be a valuable asset for your residency program. Um, so I do think that um, just good old fashioned phone calls and vouching for people and giving people solid recommendations um, are going to really impact the next, um, the next interview cycle for people matching. That makes complete sense. And I think both of us can relate to that as people who are trying to match this next cycle. One quick follow-up to that actually is, you're talking about phone calls and um, trying to reach out personally. So this is a weird position for a student because a student, we don't know whether or not we are allowed to request faculty members to phone call or if that's something that's just implied that they're going to do. So as someone in our shoes, 
how would you say that we approach this situation in terms of becoming the most competitive applicants for this cycle? So definitely you have a unique opportunity right now um, to make yourself stand out based off creativity. Um, so students I know are putting together care packages. Your guys' class has done an amazing job um, raising funds and bringing in care packages and things that kind of shows your, you know, how you guys have still managed to stay in the fight. Even though we made you go home, we won't let you do clinical stuff. You're still providing for people. You're still being kind. You're still showing character. Um, I think that continuing to do things like that, continuing to do research, and just staying in contact with faculty. So I know that the students that I advise, um, they have my personal cell phone number. Um, I don't give that out to everyone, but if I'm your advisor, I certainly do. So um, I text them from time to time. I just text one of my mentees the other day and said, hey, while you're sitting at home, read White Coat Investor, like start working on your financial health, because guess what? You're eventually going to have to pay off those loans. Um, so I've stayed in, in touch with them, and I certainly don't mind when they call me directly. They text me. Um, and I think it's just have an open line of communication. I think sometimes you guys are afraid to um, talk to us as attendings, as people. We've, we've all been where you are. Um, so if you're worried about matching and, and you want a phone call, say, hey, like, Dr. Hilton, is there any way you think you could call someone at Miami and put in a good word for me? I certainly don't ever mind it when a student asks me that. Um, it also will tell you where you stand with a faculty member because if, if you get a good, honest evaluation from a faculty member and I tell you you didn't perform so well in my service, you probably don't want to ask that faculty member to make a phone call for you. It should be someone that you know, um, someone that you trust as a student that you've had a really good experience with because those are going to be the most personable phone calls. Um, it's kind of the same as your letters of recommendation. If you wouldn't ask an attending to write you a letter of recommendation, probably don't want to ask them for a phone call either. But I anticipate making a lot of phone calls this summer um, and in the fall, particularly for the students that I mentor, because I do think that's going to be important since you guys have not been able to travel and do face-to-face. -face. So another thing you brought up is uh, that you're originally from a town near Albany. Um, I didn't, I, I, we, I, we didn't know that. And I was doing my rotations in Albany kind of before this. So one of the things that's kind of happened uh, that I've noticed, I don't know if you've noticed this as well, is that in a lot of like the media, it's kind of portrayed Albany as like, a, oh, these people in Southern Georgia didn't really care about social distancing. They didn't listen to the CDC. And it's like, well, you know, sometimes people just get unlucky. And I think that that's kind of what happened in Albany. So what do you feel about the way Albany is being portrayed in the media? All right. So, wow. so this is a loaded question. So I'm going to answer this um, with no um, political objectives. And my answer is independent of anything that MCG or AU might think. This is me being a local girl from South Georgia. Um, I think that's unfair. I think that probably a lot of this was spreading around the community in Albany early. They were hit early by COVID. Um, I think that there were probably cases as far back as November and December, January, February. Um, and Albany is a place of incredibly gracious people, loving people, um, spiritual people that go to church, they go to funerals, they, they break bread together and share food together. They hug, they kiss they embrace each other. Um, and while all of those things are what make Albany such a wonderful and South Georgia, even such a wonderful place to be from, they're also great ways to spread a virus. Um, so I think that a lot of the damage, as you said, was done before they even realized really how bad this virus was. 
Um, they're certainly in every community, not just South Georgia. There are going to be people that don't obey the rules. They're not going to social distance. They're going to continue to do things irrespective of what um, medical you know, advisors recommend. But um, I will tell you, the, the nurses and doctors and other support members that work in the Albany area, um, I'm so impressed. I, I know that, you know, that those, those people went to work for weeks on end without a break, um, without a day off. And they've, I think they've done a pretty remarkable job of taking care of their community. Um, could it have been done better early on? Yeah, I mean, probably everywhere it could have been. We're learning as we go. This is an unprecedented pandemic. And um, we, we learn new things every single day. So I think that yeah, I, th I think that South Georgia gets, you know, they've, they've gotten a bad rap because it's, it's easy to make fun of Southern folks. We talk slow. And so that must mean that we're, you know, also thinking slow. And that's, that's not the case. I think that um, could things have done better? Absolutely. They could have been done better probably everywhere worldwide. We're learning as we go. And I would commend the, the leaders really at, at both AU, MCG, Phoebe, um, and down in South Georgia, all those brave women and men who've gone in every single day to take care of their community. Thank you for opening up about all of this. And again, we, uh, we hope the best for your aunt going forward. Um, moving towards your professional career, as uh, so you talked about a little bit about your pathway to surgery in terms of coming, like, coming from UGA and MCG. What exactly made you go into surgery? Is there an aha moment in there? Yeah, so, um, so being, again, from South Georgia, uh, back then we didn't have all of the different campuses when I was in med school like you guys do now, but we did have the opportunity to do away rotations. Um, and I did a four-week rotation in Albany, which initially I was like, oh, this will be great. I can see my family more than I have in the past eight years. Um, so I you know, went down to Albany and we, we kind of stayed then. It was almost like a big frat house. There was this blue house up on the hill that they put a bunch of students in and we'd walk over to Phoebe every day. And um, it was a, a great experience both to get to know your classmates. But then also I had an aha moment down there where I just was getting to see so much about surgery and really getting to, to experience surgery firsthand, participate in the cases um, again, the Phoebe family was so warm and welcoming and the surgeon that I was doing my rotation with at the time, um, allowed me to start doing simple things like closing skin, but it piqued my interest and he made sure that I didn't just see general surgery, that I had an opportunity to see other subspecialties and I kind of my aha moment where, you know, everything just clicked into place. I went and participated, um, in a cardiac bypass and when the patient, um, came off pump, the surgeon allowed me to hold the heart when it started to beat. And um, it, it just was an experience that even now still gives me gooseies, you know, all these years later, because to see a heart not beating after surgery and then it starts beating in your hand, it's, it's just an incredible um, feeling. And I'm, I'm not even remotely interested in cardiac surgery, but that's okay. It was still really cool and kind of an aha moment that, wow, if, if we can do this and save someone's life after a massive heart attack, like, there's so many other cool things that I can do in surgery. And growing up on a farm, I, I got used to fixing things with my hands and seeing immediate results. And I love seeing the immediate results after surgery, how quickly the patients got better. Um, so that was definitely my aha moment was, again, back, back home in Albany. Uh, so, I, I, so based off of all of that, how did you specifically go towards bariatrics? So I had been through a lot of different subspecialties in residency. Um, and 
I actually had kind of the opposite problem with most people. I loved just about everything. Um, I had a really hard time picking one career, but with bariatric and minimally invasive surgery, um, I loved the fact that as a bariatric surgeon, you really are an, like a, essentially an, a medicine doctor who gets to operate. So I get to approach these patients from head to toes, address so many different systems, um, and really impact their overall health. So my patients are not only struggling with their weight, but most of them are diabetic. Most of them have hypertension, you know, heart disease, lung disease, so many other problems. Um, maybe they're also suffering from depression because they're not as physically fit as they want to be. And to be able to take a patient and see them go through a journey over six months to a year, and then five years later, where they get rid of all of these medical problems, they lose the weight. Um, psychologically, they're just in such a happier place. When I saw that as a resident, the aha moment that clicked is we had a patient that was on over 100 units of insulin a day. We did bariatric surgery, and they were off all insulin the next day. And I was just like, how is that possible? This patient's been on insulin for years. No one can fix their diabetes. We operated and it's gone. And that was my aha moment for bariatrics where I was like, I, I kind of have to do this. I have an opportunity not just to treat diabetes, but to cure it. And the endocrinologist will cringe when they hear that because we technically don't ever cure diabetes. We put it in remission. Um, but either way, it's, it's pretty cool when you think about the fact that we can take a patient who's that sick and immediately start to see these results. I also love the technological aspects with my career. Um, I do about probably 75 to 80% of my cases on the robot. Um, I mean, I literally operate from an entirely different room from where my patients are through teeny tiny holes. I do massive operations. And I think that that is really cool and cutting edge and also um, just a, a sign of the future of where surgery is heading. We don't have to cut people open, you know, from top to bottom anymore. Um, and able to accomplish kind of really cool things. And um, I mean, the robot's just cool. If you guys come sit on the console sometime and look at it, see everything in 3D, it's, it's really, really fun to, to operate each day with the robot. And the patients love it too. I've even had patients request pictures. I had a school teacher who I took a little video of the robot. He took it back to the school and showed his students like how he had his surgery done. So um, it, it really, really opens up a, a lot for both me and my patients. No, completely. I actually had my general surgery rotation in bariatrics. I had it um, here in like Lawrenceville, and it was just fascinating to see how much you can change someone's life. And as someone who is in surgery, and whether that be general surgery or uh, bariatric surgery, neurosurgery, orthopedic surgery, one of the big things is that it is a male-dominated field for the most part. So what sort of adversities did you face as a female in a male-dominated field? And then on top of that, an additional question is, do you have any advice for young females who are scared to go into surgery because of this? Yeah, so that's, that's a really good question. I get asked that a lot. Being a female, there aren't very many of us. Um, there's, there's more and more each day. But um, I think adversity is faced by everyone, um, whether you're male, female, you know, white, black. I, I don't necessarily um, think that any of us in medicine will never not face adversity. But I do think being a female or minority um, in surgery has been challenging in the past. I think it's becoming easier now. Um, but for me, I was the only female in my class. Um, and the chief class above me was also all males. So when we did all of our ingoing, outgoing chief parties, it was me and, and 13 dudes. Um, so uh, that, that can be isolating when you're the only person who looks like you and, you know, Males and females are quite different. Like I wasn't going to get many petties with my classmates. 
um, which you don't, I didn't really have time for that then anyway, but, um, my, my classmates were still extremely, um, supportive. I have very close male friends from residency and I did have some females coming along behind me. So I did have some junior residents who I'm still very close friends with. Um, and that's changing in the future. More and more women are getting into medical schools. It's about 50, 50 now for the first time ever. A couple of years ago, there were more women entering med school than men. Um, and it's starting to even out in surgical subspecialties, I think in the future. And now the problem we're facing is we have a lot of females in entry level positions, but we have very few females that are in chair positions and full professor uh, positions. So I think as more women stick with surgery and get to those positions, it's going to show even more young women that, Hey, you can do this. Like, look at that chair of surgery. You know, she's, you know, she's a mom, she's a wife, she's a female surgeon. And, um, I think that that was what was so discouraging for me when I was a medical student is I had a lot of people back then tell me, Oh, that's a man's job. Like you shouldn't do that. Why don't you focus on, you know, an easier subspecialty. Um, and I even for a while, I can remember in residency telling students, Oh, unless you really love surgery and can't imagine doing anything else, you shouldn't do it. And in hindsight, I think that's the worst advice I ever gave medical students. I really do because what I tell students now, um, having done this job, you know, for a decade and, and really kind of seeing what I've seen now is that if you at all like surgery and you're interested, you should pursue it. You're going to work hard no matter what field of medicine um, you go into and surgery is no different, but it is what you make it. You can still be a wife and a mom and all of the things that people told me I couldn't be and also be a surgeon. I'm section chief of a division of surgery and I have a six month old. Um, I'm married. I have a great, you know, home life in addition to a very fulfilling career. So what I would tell all of those women is come by my office sometime uh, if you're at MCG and I'll let you take a look at what I call my, my travel wall and my experience wall. And um, I essentially have a bookcase lined with pictures from around the world of places my husband and I have traveled to while I was a surgical resident, while I was a fellow. Um, and my new wall is a wall of, of my baby girl because she's the most important part of my life now. And I did all of that while also, you know, becoming and, and maintaining a career as a surgeon. So I would tell young women that want to go into it. It's, it's not a man's job. It's, it's a human's job. And if you really like surgery and you're interested, please don't let that hold you back. Go for it. It's, it, it really can all be done. You can't have it all. I'd, Maybe I'm sounding entirely too optimistic right now, but I, I'm one of those people that really believes you can you can have all of that. So you made a lot of really, really uh, good points that we definitely want to follow up on. But one of the first things you've talked about is how like you were kind of like the first uh, female in your class. And as like a minority male pursuing a field in orthopedics, which has a prototypical image in mind, uh, some people have kind of told me, okay, you know, you should be careful about program X, Y, and Z. Do you, did you feel or do you feel similarly about being a woman in general surgery? So again, I, I worried about that. Um, and you get a feel for places when you interview there. So what I always tell students is if you go somewhere and you get a bad vibe and you're like, man, I don't, I don't feel like they like me and I don't feel like I belong. Well, there's a hundred other programs out there where you may be exactly what they're looking for. Um, and if a program is going to be short-sighted and not welcoming of you because of, you know, your gender, your orientation, the color of your skin, you don't want to be at that program anyway, because it's not a good program. Good programs are going to be inclusive. 
Good programs are going to strive for diversity. It's what makes great programs great is our ability to seek others who are not like us. My job would be incredibly boring if I worked with people that were just like me every day. I enjoy seeing people's, you know, that have different backgrounds and different perspectives. Um, and, and if you look at successful companies outside of medicine that strive to increase their diversity, these companies do better financially um, and in lots of other ways. And I think surgery departments are catching on to that. Um, I know that it's a priority for us at AU um, and at MCG that we strive to have a diverse student uh, body and a diverse faculty body. Um, we don't want everyone to look the same because that would be pretty boring. No, that makes a lot of sense. And we know that surgery isn't prototypically a lifestyle specialty, yet you found a way to balance being a surgeon, a wife, a mother, a mentor, a program director, section chief. How do you achieve this work-life balance? So I would say, first of all, I quit using the word balance. <laughs> um, I think work-life balance is, I, I used to use that phrase a lot, but I actually now think that that's kind of a misnomer because at any one time, you're not going to be balanced. Um, so at any one time, one of those things is going to have to take priority. So, you know, some days I may be entirely focused on my daughter, take a personal day away from work so that I can be the best mom in the universe. And the next day I may be at work for 12 hours doing a bunch of surgeries and that's okay. You don't have to be the, the best at all of those things all at once. Um, and you can focus on all of them individually. Um, I think that's important to realize that if you try to be the best at all of those things at any one single time, you're setting yourself up for a letdown and for failure because no one has, you know, that kind of superpower to be the best at every single thing that they're doing at one time. You just have to prioritize it at different times in your life and at different, you know, different times at, at the same time even. So uh, you also have to have support, um, whether that's from colleagues at work, from your chair, from your family. Um, I have an amazing family who helps out with my daughter. So I have reliable childcare that I can leave my daughter with every day, go to work, do my operations. And when I'm at work, I'm completely focused on my patients, my job, um, my mentees, you know, the students. And I'm not worried that my daughter's in a safe place because I know she's with people who love her. So then at the end of the day, when I go home, um, and this becomes really hard because I was such a, you know, just focused on work and career for so long that now it's, I've, I've reached a point where when I go home some days, if I'm not on call and I don't have obligations at the hospital, I make that time for my family. I turn the phone on silent. I don't take phone calls at the dinner table and I focus on my husband. I focus on my child. Um, and we make it a point to go do something at least once a week um, as a couple and as a family um, to, to make sure I'm taking care of not just my family, but also my mental health. You get burnout. Um, burnout's a really real, you know, a real thing right now in our specialties. So if I didn't make that time to do things that make me happy and make sure that I'm taking care of myself, I'm not really of good use to my patients. Um, so that's really how I do it is I, I set aside time that's going to be dedicated to each one of those parts of my life. If you don't set a, and I don't want to call it a schedule because it's not really that rigid, but what I do is I have time that I know I'm going to be dedicated to my career and I have time that's dedicated to my family. And then I have a small amount of time that is completely dedicated just to me. And whether that's as simple as taking a hike go in to get a massage or, you know, a, a nice long bubble bath after operating all day. I have that time set aside where I can really take care of me, kind of recharge my batteries. That way the next day when I go at it again, I'm able to give it 
So one of the things you kind of mentioned was it was hard for you to make that transition. So a lot of medical students in general and a lot of people that are going into surgery and surgeons, they're very type A and they're very much like, I have to be the best all the time at everything. So how did you kind of get rid of that mentality? Oh, I didn't get rid of it. It's still there. <laughs> um, I still want to be the best. Um, every single day, I, I think we all kind of strive to be our best. Um, what I, th I think what made a difference to me, honestly, um, was my pregnancy. Um, when I got pregnant with my daughter, uh, for the first time ever, it wasn't all about me anymore. I had to take care of this other, you know, little being that I was, you know, growing inside of me and taking care of. So um, the days of operating for 12 hours without eating or drinking, um, that was not an option. And what I did is I made time for myself for probably the first time in my career where I would say, you know what, I'm going to take a pause. I'm going to step out. I'm going to eat some food. I'm going to drink. I'm going to let my partners take care of this issue. And then I would come back and jump back in. And what I learned is that the sky did not fall. The hospital did not crumble around me when I set aside five to 10 minutes to, to stop and eat a sandwich. Um, it, it didn't, you know, crumble. If I stopped to go check my blood pressure late in pregnancy to make sure it wasn't, you know, getting too high again. Um, and then when it got to the point when my OB told me, you know what, your blood pressure is getting too high, you can't operate anymore. I, again, I, I talked to my patients, they were incredibly understanding. Um, and my partner did some of my cases. So, and by the way, that was five days before I delivered. So it's not like I took a ton of time off before having her, but you know, in the last week when you're 39 weeks, it's, it's probably time to stop operating. But um, the point is that by taking care of myself, I was able to do that. I operated up until five days before my daughter was born. Um, I took care of myself during the pregnancy and it kind of taught me that it's okay to say no. And I think that's where a lot of us struggle is you, you pile on so much and so much, particularly as a med student, particularly as a resident, that every single person who asks you to do something, you've kind of all been brainwashed to just say, yes, I'm happy to do it. Well, the reality is if you don't have the bandwidth to get it done and you're going to do a bad job at it, it's better even as a student to say, I'm really interested in working with you, doctor, you know, insert name here. Um, right now I'm doing a couple of other research projects. Can I approach you when I'm finished with those? And what I have found is that simply by just talking to people and, and telling people when I've got too much on my plate and putting, you know, putting some things off, um, it really has made a difference. And uh, kind of the way I'm doing it now, I think it's Warren Buffett. I, I read a lot of books um, about, you know, self-growth and things like that and leadership because when you become a leader, I feel like you should constantly be growing. Um, and one of the things that Warren Buffett does is he has people that work for him write down 20 things that they think are the most important 20 things they need to accomplish in their life or for the year or whatever time that they think they should get it done. And then he says, okay, now strike it down to five. So I don't do it that rigidly, but what I do is I make a list of things I want to get accomplished. And then I try to cut that list into half and maybe even to a quarter. Um, and those are the things that I really then get accomplished and make sure I'm achieving. And that's been a really helpful kind of way to do that for me. Um, especially in the past, past year when I've, you know, had additional opportunities and, and things on my plate is, um, the power of saying no is hard because you never want to tell people no, but sometimes you just need to in order to excel at other things. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And, and you talked a little bit about your own type A personality and having to try and put yourself first and put your own wellness first. As someone who is a program director at surgery now, one of the roles you take is kind of fostering this environment um, in which the residents are uh, trained. 
So how do you create a positive and fostering environment in such a demanding residency? Um, so I think that uh, first and foremost, uh, just by asking our residents to be good people, um, I've, I've told many students this, when, when I get to the point of interviewing um, candidates for residency, I already know you're academically qualified or we wouldn't have given you an interview. Um, I'm just trying to kind of fill out at that point, like, are you someone I want to train that I want to hang out with possibly every single day for the next five to seven years? We're going to be spending a lot of time together. So you want to make sure that we enjoy that time together. Um, and I think kindness comes above all other things and uh, just making sure our residents are being good people. Um, I encourage them to find balance. Uh, we encourage our residents to, you know, take take a wellness day once a month where they just go get their dry cleaning done or go to the gym or get a haircut. Um, and kind of the same thing that I'm just telling you, I, I make sure that one, you're here to learn to operate, right? Like we're trying to train surgeons. So it, you need to be focused on that. But at the same time, we I also don't want to see our residents completely shut down as people for five years. I don't want them to be robots. Um, I want them to tell me if it's if it's your kid's birthday and your only goal for today as a resident is to make it home by 8 p.m. to put your kid to bed and read them a bedtime story, I will make that happen as you're attending, even if it means I'm going to operate without a resident on my last case. Um, so I try to make sure our residents are having open lines of communication with us and telling us when they're getting burnt out and um, when they need a break. Um, I also want them to, to tell us when something is a good experience and when something's a bad experience. Um, so if they're not telling us if a rotation is really not providing an educational opportunity, we don't know how to fix it. Um, but if they're telling us, Hey, I'm not really getting that much out of this. We, we try to move them somewhere else. Um, we've just recently instituted, um, rural rotations for our, our residents and that's all on hold right now with, with COVID, but, um, we're going to get that back on track when, when life is back to normal. And it's a great opportunity for them to go see how private practice surgeons operate and how communities, you know, function around, you know, true general surgery outside of academia. Um, so we want to create well-rounded residents. Uh, we also want to have healthy, but mentally, physically um, residents that are, you know, encouraged to approach us um, and ask us for the things they need. And also I want to create a generation of surgeons that when, I'm old someday, or if I need an operation, they can take care of me. Um, so I kind of think that the ultimate compliment I can pay one of our residents is when they get to that point as a chief, when I'm like, you know, I would let you take care of my family. Um, that's when I know they're, they're, they're ready to release um, when they've, they've reached that level of growth. And um, if I'm wanting to recruit them back as a partner and I'm wanting to recruit them as a surgeon who I would let take care of my friends and family, then I know we've, we've done a, a, a job well done training them. So I remember when you spoke to our class uh, uh, over a year ago, one of the things you talked about has, is how you're an avid rock climber. So do you think that uh, rock climbing or any of your other outside interests have influenced the way you practice medicine? Uh, definitely. So um, everyone who knows me knows I love outdoors. I love outdoor adventures. Um, I've tried to tame some of those activities down now that I have a kiddo. Um, so, um, but yeah, it, it definitely impacted who I am because that's one of the reasons I, I love bariatrics is we focus so much on wellness, um, eating right, physical activity, getting outside and I always tell my patients, find something you love to do. When I'm rock climbing on the, the side of a mountain or cliff or even in a gym on a rock wall, I'm not thinking about, man, I hate my workout. I'm thinking this is awesome. 
like the higher I climb, the better, the faster I climb, the better, whether I'm on a hike, even if I'm sweating and I've got blisters on my feet, by the time I reach the summit of whatever I'm climbing, um, or skiing or snowboarding, any of the outdoor things I do, you're, you're burning a ton of calories, you're being fit, you're reaching your goals, but it doesn't feel like you're doing that. It feels like you're having fun. Um, and surgery was like that for me. When I went to work or went to school as a medical student for surgery, it did not feel like a job. I went in each day. I was excited to be there. I was fascinated by what I was doing. And when I left at the end of the day, I felt like I'd made a true difference. Um, and I still feel like that today. I feel like I go into work. I get to hang out with incredible people. Um, and my patients know the type of stuff that I, I like to do outdoors because we have a, a Facebook support group. And, um, you know, I, if I go and do something like that, I, I post it to social media and challenge them and say, hey, look what I'm doing. And I might be in the middle of a you know, river somewhere kayaking and say, you know, why aren't you out doing this today? Uh, get off your couch, go outdoors, find something that, you know, that inspires you. Um, so I, I think definitely being an outdoor enthusiast, um, one, I think it makes you tough. I think you have to have stamina to do a lot of the activities that both me and my husband and now my daughter is, uh, starting to already love to do outdoors. And, um, I don't, I think if you, if you like athletics and you, you like the challenge of, and team play, all of that fits really well into being a surgeon. I don't know if you've heard about Brazilian jiu-jitsu, but I've been told by a lot of surgeons like, oh, I have to take care of my hands, like be careful. Um, and I would think that rock climbing is kind of the same way. So like, do you have any advice regarding taking care of your hands or anything like that? Yeah, dude, you're sounding a lot like my dad. Um, so my dad, the first, uh, one of the first summers, actually the first summer of med school, um, I also used to go out to Jackson Hole, Wyoming and, um, lead trail rides on horses through the Tetons. Um, and part of that meant breaking the horses when they were brought up from New Mexico each summer. So no one had sat on them for months. So um, I, I broke my hand out in Wyoming and my dad, I remember him being so upset with me. He was like, Oh my gosh, you're not trying to be a professional cowgirl. You're trying to be a surgeon. Like, what are you doing? Um, so I think that some of those things, yeah, you have to kind of rein them back in. That being said, I'm still going to keep skiing. I'm still going to keep riding horses. I'm still going to keep doing all the outdoor things that I love while paying attention to my hands. I did give up the snowboarding and trade in for skiing. Cause I will tell you every bad fall I've had on a snowboard, I face planted. So um, at least with skiing, I'm more inclined to tear up my knees. Um, so at, you can't limit your life based off your career. I think that as you have a family and as you, you know, become career oriented, um, I did give up boxing. Uh, my chair insisted that in Miami when I was a resident, he was like, yeah, you can't box anymore. Um, so there are certain things that you probably should put on hold, especially while you're training where every little bit of time you have learning from others is valuable. Um, but you, you, I'm, I'm not one that's ever going to completely limit the fun in life um, based off of that. I think that we're all, we're all meant to go out and do these fun things or we wouldn't have this big playground, you know, out, outdoors in Augusta to play on. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm not giving up my, <laughs> I'm not giving up my rock climbing or, uh, or my skiing. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, it seems like you have a lot of interesting stories from both like outside and inside your professional career. Is there any interesting story either from residency or career or even outside of that that you'd like to share with our audience? Yeah, I actually have um, a pretty cool, uh, you guys had told me you wanted a residency story. So I, I thought back on residency um, and still probably one of the coolest things I've ever seen happen. Um, 
So Miami is a real heavy trauma program. So we did, we did a ton of trauma as residents in Miami. Um, and I'll never forget this one kid. He was 17 years old. Um, I was, you know, the senior resident on trauma call. And uh, this kid gets just dropped off out of a car in the trauma bay. Um, and he was shot in the chest. And we did an ED thoracotomy. And he had been shot in the atrium of his heart. Um, we repaired it in the trauma bay until we could get him to the OR, um, to do a formal repair. But what's fascinating about this story is if you, if you know anything about trauma, a lot of these ED thoracotomies like that don't make it. It's a sad story. Most people, you know, would end up dying, but not only was he dead when he came in, we got him back to life. We repaired this hole in his heart. Um, and he self extubated overnight. He pulled the tube out and said, I'm hungry. And when I rounded the next morning, we gave him breakfast. So he literally went from being dead, shot in the heart, extubated, and ate pancakes all within like a 24-hour period. And I just remember thinking, holy cow, again, if we can do this, like we can do anything in medicine, like everything is going to be possible. And he walked out of the hospital completely fine. Um, And it it was one of those kind of earth-shattering moments in residency where Yet again, here I am holding, you know, another human's heart in my hands and we've, we've saved this kid. The attending on the case was just cool, calm and collected and did a great job. And um, this ended up being a 17 year old who then went to college and, and made a you know, career and has done wonderful things. And again, I don't think, I, I hope other people feel as satisfied with their careers as I do, but I just don't know that it gets any better than that, you know, to save someone's life and see the gratitude and just... It's just, again, all the goosies, you know, if you don't, if you're not getting goosebumps every single day, I think when you go into work as a doctor, you've really made a poor decision. You probably should have gone into something else. That was a really, really like incredible story. I don't think we could have asked for a better one than that. Do you have any like final thoughts or anything you'd like to leave our listeners with? Uh, Yeah. So be kind. I think that, you know, COVID is you know, we're doing this podcast right in the middle of COVID-19. Um, and it's really changed, I think, the way that we all are as humans, not just as providers, but just humans in general. And I've seen so much compassion, um, so much kindness in the community. And just, I, I think we should all strive to be more like that when all of this is over. Um, one of my favorite quotes is a quote by Mark Twain. Um, it's actually on one of my social media pages. It's a uh, Kindness is a language which the deaf can hear and the blind can see. So I think if we all just adhered to that, I think that will take you so much further in life than any other bit of advice I can give you about surgery or medicine or anything. Just be a kind human. Um, Go into the hospital each day recognizing that for us, those are four walls that hold our job. Um, But it may be the worst day of someone else's life or it may be the best day of their life or, you know, you just never know what they're going through. And as a medical student, while you guys may not be able to provide medical knowledge yet, you can provide directions, you can smile at someone, you can give a cup of coffee. There's so many things that, that we can do during this time and then even after COVID that will um, really, I think, make a lasting impact on our patients, our community, and on each other. Um, but yeah, that would, that would be my last imparting wisdom is just be kind. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Hilton, for joining us. This has been incredible and just an amazing experience for both of us. Awesome. Thanks. Uh, happy to do it and um, happy to come back anytime. Thank you guys for, for doing this and staying active and uh, trying to still engage your classmates and all of the other people who aren't even, you know, medicine on online with this. Uh, I think it's a really great initiative that you two are doing. 